Good morning. It's good to see everyone here. We are nearing the end of this series, walking through some of the pressure points we face. We're walking through uh, the book of James. It highlights a handful of things that are very, very common in life struggles and experiences, areas where we just experience uh, challenges to really grow. All these pressure points are, are areas where God can grow us and He can use the pressure in our lives to produce some things in us that we, on our own, uh, would not likely grow in. And so these, these areas, so far we've looked at uh, pressures like the, the workload or just taking on additional responsibility, uh, the pressure cooker seasons of training. We've looked at temptation, how that's a pressure cooker. We've talked about our words. We talked about the challenge when God highlights something in the Bible that we have to really struggle to do something with it, and that's a pressure point in our life. Today we're going to look at conflict. And James, he just kind of like a surgeon, he just is very accurate in the way that he uh, prescribes what the problems are and shows us what the solutions are. And so today we're looking at conflict and how do we handle the pressure point of conflicts in relationships. Uh, pressure and conflict in family life and friendships are some of the most disappointing experiences in life because we really want our relationships to go smoothly. We would like harmony. And just when you start to have an enjoyable time together, conflict erupts and then uh, our, our hopes are dashed. And we often hang very high hopes. We place very high hopes on our relationships. We have expectations. And so uh, it shows up all across the board in our in our relationships. For example, we might meet a new friend and we might think, Oh man, we just, we hit it off immediately. It could be someone at school, it could be at work, it could be someone at church, but inevitably, uh, they let us down in some way. They disappoint us. And maybe once or twice the impact is small, but a string of, of disappointments or letdowns. And then there's just like, ugh, everything I was hoping for in this new friendship is, is, is really falling apart. And so, today we're gonna to look at how do I deal with the disappointment that comes up? In, in the conflict that comes up in relationships. Or sometimes it's at, it's at work. You, you start a new job and you've left a previous job where there was conflict and there was frustration and you just didn't like the, the vibe there. And so you leave that job, you go to a new job and your coworkers they seem like a great group of people and you're thinking, man, this is looking good. This looks like a solid opportunity. I've been hoping for a job like this. But then over time, the fangs come out. And the claws start coming out and you're like, here we go again. Just like the old experience. And it's the same old story. Uh, so the hopes that we had are, are dashed once again. Uh, romantic relationships, they're possibly the most fertile ground for unrealistic expectations. Is a romantic relationship. You start hoping, if I just meet that perfect person, and then you meet them. And you're like, man, this is, this is great. I met, I met the most perfect person that's going to come together. I've got all the things I've been looking for. Uh, and so we set these high, high expectations. And you, you probably all have your own list of, of what those expectations are for you. Uh, here's a video clip from the movie The Groundhog Day, or Groundhog Day. And it's where this guy, he, he relives the same day over and over and over. It's played by Bill Murray. And, his name in the in the movie is is Phil, and Phil lives the same uh, day over and over again. And he's he's getting to know this lady that's her, her name is Rita, and he's he's very interested in Rita. And so he starts realizing I'm living the same day over. I can learn more and more about this lady, um, and 
I can build an understanding based on my conversations and interactions, and I can I can become more the perfect man because he asks her about the perfect man. What is the perfect man like? And he's taking notes in his mind so he can become this guy. So let, let's watch this. But it shows this idea of expectations of the perfect man. So let's take a look. So what do you want out of life anyway? I guess I want what everybody wants, you know. Career, love, marriage, children. Are you seeing anyone? I think this is getting too personal. I don't think I'm ready to share this with you. How about you? What do you want? What I really want is someone like you. (laughs) Oh, please. Well, why not? What are you looking for? Who is your perfect guy? Well, first of all, he's too humble to know he's perfect. That's me. He's intelligent, supportive, funny. Intelligent, supportive, funny. Me, me, me. He's romantic and courageous. Me also. He's got a good body, but he doesn't have to look in the mirror every two minutes. I have a great body, and sometimes I go months without looking. (laughs) He's kind, sensitive, and gentle. He's not afraid to cry in front of me. This is a man we're talking about, right? He likes animals and children, and he'll change poopy diapers. Does he have to use the word poopy? Oh, and he plays an instrument, and he loves his mother. I am really close on this one. Really, really close. (laughs) So she's got this picture in her mind she's describing. And, you know, men have their own version of unrealistic expectations that kind of can set up a man for profound disappointment. But the games in this movie continue between these two characters until he gets it right. He's taking notes in his mind. And he has this advantage of being able to start every new day and, you know, implementing some changes so he can, he can walk into her life as the perfect guy. And, uh, we don't, we don't have that advantage. And so, in real time, real life, we're constantly disappointing one another. In our relationships, in our friendships, in our romantic relationships. Things are just, we disappoint one another because none of us can get it all right. And we tend to add all sorts of pressure by building up our expectations for our family members, for our friends, uh, for that perfect someone, we, 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 we add all sorts of pressure on the relationships and then we're disappointed when, when things don't play out like we'd hoped. Uh, this, this happens for guys and for gals. Uh, ladies, some ladies dream all their life about their wedding from a very young age. And movies kind of perpetuate this. Uh, but then the wedding... You know, if it's pulled off without any major mishaps, the wedding, you know, the marriage begins to ensue and and the high hopes kind of remain. But then there's the first fight, and it might be on the honeymoon. You're like, uh oh, we're not starting off all that great, you know. And then and then you're in your fifth fight, and it's it's only the second day of the honeymoon. And you're like, uh oh. But really, what it is is it's the continual underlying tension and unresolved conflict that brings the disappointment and the challenges in marriage. All of our hopes, oh, if I just got married, if I just found... And then when that 
you know, doesn't happen. We're just disappointed and there's conflict. Or kids enter the picture and it's, it's a real kicker because kids can kind of zap the energy. They can drain some, some energy that you had and you're just trying to keep your head above water and handling life and raising kids the right way. You were hoping that, that these children, that their love and their admiration would just somehow fill your emotional tank and, uh, and instead, you're, you're just feeling drained and, and exhausted. The expectations, this is, this is the issue that James is getting at here in chapter 4. He talks about managing and dealing with the expectations we have in life. Because expectations are relationship killers, and we need to know what to do with them. And so, let's look at this passage. James, he shows us this, that conflict actually reveals a misplaced hope. This is on top of your listening guide. Conflict in life reveals... We have a misplaced hope. It, it can reveal this pressure point to us. Look at what James says, verses 1 through 6. He writes this, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire, you don't have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you, don't, you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, James writes, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The first thing we see is, is we see the real source of conflict. The real source of conflict. Verses 1 through 3. James, just to kind of back up, verse 1, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? There's some things that we really want. We're passionate about getting some things in life. And he says in verse 2, you desire and you do not have. We, this is a tremendous, uh, or this is one of the major sources of our problems, is our desire. If you were to circle something, uh, verse 2, the first two words, you desire. Your desires, my desires, stir up all sorts of conflict in life. I want some things in life. You want some things in life. And you, you intend that that person in your life is going to give you what you really want. And when you don't get it, James says, man, some horrible things can happen. You desire, you don't have, and so you murder, he says. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask. Conflict starts, James says, with our desires. We want something and we're willing to hurt others to get it. Uh, This could be the intangible things like respect. Like you want respect. All of us probably want respect. I want you to talk to me with some respect. Please show me some respect when you talk to me. Or, or hey, I really could use some encouragement. I'm really down right now. I need some encouragement. And so we start asking or hoping and demanding, can you just be more encouraging to me? You meet up with someone and you're seeking out that encouragement or that affirmation. And when we don't get it, uh, we might respond with a smart remark or we might choose a real grumpy attitude which creates some unpleasant you know, interaction from then on. Or it could be really a tangible thing that you desire, not just respect or encouragement. It could be a tangible thing like, I just want some help around the house. It's not too much ask. You've probably said that before. 
You know, I've been cooking meals, I've been cleaning, I, I've, I've been working on projects, I've been trying to make this place more livable for everyone else. I just, I just want a little bit of help. Can everybody please pitch in and, and help me? And then nobody gets on board. Nobody gets on board and, and so you start to say some hurtful things and everyone kind of walks around you because they know they've disrupted you, but they're not quite sure what happened. But, but we have these expectations that are up here. We want people to give us what we really want. At work, this can happen. Your boss, he or she overlooks your hard work by passing you over for promotion. Maybe giving the best work to someone else. And so you stop doing good work at, you know, at, at the workplace. You start just doing half-hearted work. Because I, I just expect a little bit more uh, promotion. I expect a little bit more praise and reward. And, and what James is saying is our desires... They get twisted up. We get disappointed because our desires get twisted up. We don't get what we want from other people. And then conflict ensues. We don't ask God for what we want. We rely instead on our own strength and our own strategies to get it. And our own strategies generates more conflict. Our approaches tend to escalate conflict in life. And we may not go so far as what James... He's describing a real extreme case of murder, killing, coveting, all these things. We, you know, we may not go extreme, but we don't mind hurting other people in our own way. James is saying, look, you want what you want, and when you don't get it, you're willing to hurt people. You're willing to shout, raise your voice, uh, respond with a reactive attitude, withdraw yourself. We know how to hurt people. If we do ask, James says, we often ask with the wrong motive. Look at what he says there at the bottom. You ask, you do not receive because you ask wrongly in order to spend it on your, on your passions. At the root of some of our requests to God is a selfish motive. And when we ask with a selfish motive, God does not board the train with us. It's like we want God's help. God, will you get them to give me what I want? Will you clue them into the things I need at home? God doesn't hop aboard that train with us. And we continue to drive forward with this agenda and these expectations. And we're like, God, you're supposed to be helping me. Why aren't you giving me the help? I'm certainly not getting the things I'm asking and you're not even getting them on board. What this means here, James is saying, is God wants to help us do what He wants to do. He'll supply the help when it's in line with what He wants. But whenever we choose self-centered strategies, we just don't get the help from Him. And so God, He works through this frustration in relationships to change us. This, this struggle of fighting and quarreling and conflict over our desires, this struggle entered in the garden. Basically, right, out, right after Adam and Eve sinned, the frustration in relationships began for people. Now, this is a very normal human experience. And then there's pride. We start getting proud. And whenever we get into pride with other people, it drains the power to do right by them. And so God, he, he wants to change our goals. He wants us to do life in a way that pleases Him, not just pleasing ourselves. And so God, He's trying to help us set our goals much higher than just our own desires. He wants us to set our goals in line with His big picture for our lives. And so the real source of hope is this. It's, the real source of conflict is our desires. The things that we want. That gets us into all sorts of conflict. The real source of hope, look at, look at verses 4-5. through five. James writes, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us? Verse 4, it lays out the hope, basically the source of hope in a roundabout way. Here's what it's saying. Whenever we decide to give ourselves to follow Jesus Christ, if you decide to make Jesus the Lord of your life, you become a friend of God. Okay, that's part of... You're a friend of God. You're no longer an enemy to God. If you're, if you're not a Christ follower, Scripture describes it as, we're like enemies to God. We're separated from Him. We're enemies to Him. But as soon as you decide to follow Christ, you become a friend of God. We don't earn that right to be God's friend. He has given that to you as a gift of grace. It's His grace. Now what happens is we, as friends of God, Christ followers, can fall back into our old ways. And that's described here as friendship with the world. Whenever we choose to put our hope in the people around us, we're being friends to the world. Think of, think of uh, this issue of who's my best friend? I don't know if you, if you would, I don't know if you have a, a close friend that you said, this is my best friend. Um, but in this, in this passage, think of Jesus, or think of James saying, when you're a Christ follower, it's like you've made Jesus your number one friend. He is, you're a friend to him. That, that is the number one friendship. That is the number one priority. He's the boss. He's at the center. As soon as we decide to shift back to putting people as number one, there's this conflict now between God and us over this choice we've made to try to be friends with the world and gain you know, our desires through the world versus trusting God. Because when we commit our lives to Christ, what we're really saying, one of the things we're saying is, God, I trust you to meet all my needs in life. You're the boss. I trust that if you're not providing this right now for me, if this is delayed, then I can still trust you. I trust that you're good, you're faithful, you know what I need, and so you're going to pour into my life the things that I really need, and I'll trust you with the timing. You're my friend, and I trust you that you're, you're in charge. You can give me what I really need. And many times in our lives, we're satisfied with that. When we're, in, we're in, when we're in the right place and in our right mind, we're satisfied with waiting on God for Him to meet our needs. But sometimes we get anxious. And, and we start looking again at the people around us and thinking, I, they're just, if they just give me a little bit more, if they just treat me with more respect, if they just love me in a different way, if they just serve me, encourage me. And when God sees this longing that we have to be having our needs met by the world, this creates opposition. We start putting our hope in God, or in, in people around us, and, and it's easy to do that. But we need to fix our hope in God and stay there. Verse 5 says that whenever we're trying to be a friend of the world and a friend of God at the same time, that, that doesn't work. It actually says in verse 5 that God yearns jealously over us when we're in that kind of divided state. We're being double-minded. We're hoping in God and also hoping people are going to come through. When we're in that double-minded state, God yearns jealously. I, I always do a double-take when I read in Scripture that God is jealous. Because when you read that God's jealous, you're thinking, well, that seems like a sin to be jealous. So, And I know God doesn't sin, so how is God jealous? The phrase yearns jealously, it, 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 it means that God feels pain when we don't give Him His rightful place or priority in our lives. So, as you, as you and I know, jealousy is a painful experience. 
We're, we can be jealous of watching what other people have and we, what we don't have. Well, when God sees us trying to get our needs met by people, uh, that creates this, this jealousy. The Greek word yearn actually means to dote upon or to intensely crave a possession. To intensely crave a possession. So it creates this. That God, He is, in this case, God is our rightful owner. He has the trademark of our soul. He, he bought us. He paid for us through the blood of Jesus. And so He created us also with freedom to do our own thing. To kind of flip-flop in our devotion. We can be devoted to God, waiting on Him, expecting, you know, and hoping in Him. We can also be flip-flopping back to this place of putting our hope in people. And verse 5 is saying, whenever we fight and quarrel because we don't, you know, trying to get our way, it grieves God because we're not doing life His way. We're not depending on Him. And He's the one who both made us and bought us by paying for us. He, he paid for our sin on the cross. And so when we, when we yield to Him, we're saying, God, You are my only source of hope. I'm turning my whole life to You to meet my needs. Even when people disappoint me, I'm going to trust You. My friends are going to disappoint me. God, that's okay. I can hope in you. My husband's going to disappoint you. My wife's going to disappoint me. God, I, that's okay. I, I'm trusting in you. You're going to meet my needs. You're going to give me what I need. Again, this is about making Him our number one priority. If we'll do that, He promises to give us what we need. And when we turn to Him in genuine humility, He comes through. If we'll wait on Him, He comes through. Look at verse 6. He gives more grace, verse says, or verse 6 says. God gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. There's a danger in our relationships of becoming self-righteous to to really look down on other people when they do the same things that we ourselves have done. We've had a habit of doing things where we can be extra critical of people in our lives. And whenever we try to justify ourselves, it just doesn't work because we need God to justify us. By His grace. And when you choose self-righteous pride, God, what God does in that experience, whenever we justify ourselves and start trying to push others and demand others give us something, God pushes against us and we will lose this wrestling match or this, um, this battle every single time. God opposes the proud, but God gives grace to the humble. Whenever we get into self-righteous pride with others in our relationship, God, He will push against us. And so the best thing here, James says, is humble ourselves before Him. Humble ourselves, and when we do, He gives us the grace that can be handed out even through our lives to the people around us. We give our expectations to God and we put our hope in Him. It's like prayer. Father, it would be great today if I could get some encouragement from people. But I'm going to look to you today. I'm going to look to you today to give that, if you decide to. I'm not going to try to get encouragement in any other way than to wait on you in whatever way. So I'm going to go about my responsibilities. Maybe you'll meet that need through people. Maybe you'll meet that need just through my life experience today. Maybe you'll refresh me through progress. And God, I don't know how you're going to meet that need, but I'm just bringing this to you. It would be great if you could... If you could bring the help in this area, I'm not going to try to squeeze that out of other people, though. I'm going to love people. I'm going to care for people. Or, Lord, I'm going to, I'm going to get this work done around the house today, but I need energy. Can you help me? It's just bringing these needs that we have to God, bringing it to the right place, choosing the right attitude towards the people around us. 
going to work with just a decision, I'm going to work hard today because I know you're paying attention, God. Rather than saying, God, please help the boss pay attention to me and, and give me what I need. God, I just I know you're watching and I know that you will bring blessing in your time. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to put my hands to the work today and I'm going to keep a firm grip. I'm going to move forward. I trust you. Over and over in different ways, we, we have to do this. We just have to say, God, here's my needs, here's my hopes, but I'm trusting you with these things. And God, He gives us the grace to pass along in, in, in the right way to people in our lives. Now, here's some final thoughts here from the end of James. He says, basically you get this experience that conflict calms when we put our hope in God and submit to His way. Really quickly, James 4, 7-10, it reads, Submit yourself yourselves therefore to God resist the devil and he will flee from you draw near to God and he will draw near to you cleanse your hands you sinners and purify your hearts you double minded be wretched and mourn and weep let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you he gives some real practical ways to put our hope in God the first kind of section of James 4 is is about where do you put your hope that's verses 1 through 6 where do you put your hope this, this next three verses or four verses are really about once you put your hope into God, you need a plan. You need a way to practically keep your hope there. So the first thing he says, submit yourself to God. Our tendency is to like, is to identify a goal, lock onto that goal like a radar. Instead, James tells us, submit to God every day and let Him have control. Just, God, not my will, but yours. I submit myself to you today. Would you, would you, would you lead me through your word? Would you guide me through your, your truth? I submit myself to you today. Number two, he says, resist the devil. Whenever we decide to follow Christ, we gain three enemies. We gain the enemy, well, we, we battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world is the culture that we live in and how it feels like the culture is moving in opposition to God. That's true. It is. And so when you decide to follow Christ, it feels like you're swimming upstream now. And just the ways that God is asking you to go, it just feels so opposite than the, the trend of our culture. And so we have to resist that. We have to resist the flesh, but we also have to resist the devil. The devil is a real being who wants to ruin our relationships, and he seeks to destroy our lives. He wants us to get tangled up in old ways and old temptations. He wants us to buy into lies. He uses deceit. And he comes after us with all sorts of schemes. And so we have to resist him. We have to resist the enemy thoughts. We have to resist the lies. And what he often does in, in relationship to people is he, he sets up unrealistic expectations on others. He sets up, you know, kind of a... Uh, he feeds the lie that they, they should be giving you what you really want. They should be more encouraging. They should, she should have been more encouraging you today. She should be more respectful to you. And so we have to battle off and resist the lies of putting your hope back into people. We resist the devil. Also, we draw near to God. This is just meaning pray. We pray. We draw near to God and we pray. and we, God, would you help me today? And as we draw near to Him, God draws near to us. Father, help me to do what you want me to do right now. Show me what would please you right now. We pray in the moment. Also, we need to do this. We need to cleanse our hands and cleanse our hearts. Cleansing our... Basically, the hands in the Bible tend to represent what we do in life. Our hands typically is equal to our actions or what we do. And so, when we 
wash, when we cleanse our hands and our hearts, it's basically a picture of washing our hands of wrongdoing, confessing sin. When we get into sin and when we displease God every day, we just confess that to God. We cleanse our hearts, we cleanse our hands. We clear up broken relationships. We just acknowledge, God, you said this was wrong. I did that wrong. I acknowledge that. You, you, you say you, you hate these things. Lord, I got into those things. and I, I, Would you forgive me for that? God says pride is a sin. God, I agree. I was proud today. I just admit that. I admit that to you. Would you forgive me for that? God, you say greed is a sin. God, I've been greedy. Would you, would you just forgive me of that? I, I agree. That was sin to get into that. And on and on and on. We just cleanse our hearts, cleanse our hands. There's a picture here of, of clearing up relationships with one another. Oftentimes when we confess sin, God says, you know, Josh, it's good that you acknowledge that to me because that was sin. But you, hit, you hurt a few people along the way. So some people caught some shrapnel. So now you need to go clear it up with those people. So cleansing our hearts, cleansing our hands has to do with even clearing up our relationships and taking responsibility. He says, James says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Meaning when we find ourselves divided in our focus, like God, I'm, I'm creeping back towards trying to get my hopes met in people. Purify my heart again, Lord. Just help me to just realize that I need to hope in you alone. Give me that one goal. Then James says to grieve over your sin. And so what this means is we're just... We're instructed to take our sin seriously. When we, when we sin against God, whether it's a pattern or a one-time thing, we, we need to take it seriously. It's so easy to become callous towards our sin that we don't really grieve over it anymore. Especially during conflict. So we need to have genuine sorrow over the wrong we do. Especially in conflict, when our hearts can get really hard towards people, we need to just ask God, God, you help me to have a brokenness over my sin. Help me to see the damage that I've been causing. Help me to see why this person is hurting and not just be callous towards my sin. And then finally, James says, humble yourself and wait on God. We just we need to often do this every day. Humble ourselves. We don't demand to get our way with what we want. We humble ourselves before God and we wait on Him to provide what we need in His timing. This, this really, these final four verses, verses 7 through 10, really are a path that James lays out for a constructive, how to deal with conflict in a constructive way. Because conflict in relationships is impossible to, to avoid. But James shows us kind of, one, how to identify why the conflict is there. Oftentimes it's just a misplaced hope. But then two, here's a way to just daily walk with God and be able to interact in relationships uh, in a way to unravel some of the mess, bring, bringing a calm uh, to our what would be just a real, real explosive conflict situation. So, a couple of next steps I want to suggest. The first one is just pray this week. Keep, keep coming to God and saying, God, put, I, I put my hope in You. Put my hope in You. I bring You my hopes. The expectations I've been placing on others, I'm going to take that list. I'm going to remove it from them. And I'm going to move this, God, to a conversation with You. I'm going to bring my hopes to You. And then second, just look through those practical steps that we've looked at here to calming down conflict, and apply the one that you most need in your life. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for, again, James, Lord, this this list here and these this this, uh, picture of, of a person who is divided in their hopes and the experience that that is. Lord, we can identify with that. We've all 
uh, struggled to keep our hope in the right place. And God, we don't want to be a person who is uh, finding ourselves in opposition to You. Your Word says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Lord, whenever we get into a place where we start pushing others and demanding others and trying to place unrealistic expectations on others, Lord, we find ourselves really battling against You. So I just pray we'd confess that, God. If you pinpointed that for any of us here, Lord, we just bring that to you. We confess it. We ask you to help us to put our hope in the right place. Lord, help us to hope in you and wait on you. Help us to apply the truths that you've uh, highlighted for us today. We ask for your help in our relationships, God. Some of them, right now, we're in rocky places. Lord, others, we're, we're just waiting for the next conflict to, to stir up. So, God, would you, you've given us help through your word and guidance, Lord. So I pray that we would apply the things you're showing us, Lord. We ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.